Well, hey, and welcome to Ridge Church. It's great to be with you this morning, wherever you're at, wherever you're watching from, whatever time you're watching this service, we want to welcome you here. My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge Church, and it's great to be with you this morning. We are back in our series this morning in the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bible or if you've got your phone or whatever it may be, open up to Philippians chapter 1. I'm really excited today. We're going to be walking through an amazing, beautiful passage that the Apostle Paul writes. But, but the whole kind of concept to this series that we've been in has been a really, really interesting one. We've been looking at what it means to imitate. What does it mean to imitate Jesus or imitate people who follow Jesus and lead us towards Jesus so that we might be his disciple? Now, when you think about Christianity or when you think about faith, pretty often you'll think about the word Christian, right? I, I remember when I first met Christ, I described to people that I became a Christian. Or when we talk about different things, we use the term Christian to describe it, right? Christian movies, Christian music, Christian this, Christian that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that word, but you may not realize this. The word Christian only actually occurs in the New Testament three times. It's not a common word. It's not something that's used again and again and again and again. In fact, it's barely used. It's used as a descriptor of those who follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's not a hugely biblical word. What is more often used is the word disciple. See, Jesus's 12 friends were known as the disciples, but the New Testament uses the word to describe those who would come after Jesus more than 250 times. It's this incredibly important word, and that's what this series is all about. We want to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, not just to have like a descriptor word uh, of Christian placed on us, but rather what does it mean to be a disciple? And what we're seeing over the course of this series is that that happens in the everyday stuff of life. It's not just something that happens for 15 minutes on a Sunday or anything like that, but it's something that happens in the everyday moments of our lives. In the first week of this series, we looked at three different people, an intellectual business person and a blue collar prison guard and a slave girl who's set free. We, we looked at what it means to have real friendships in the way that Paul prays for the Philippian church. We looked at what it means to deal with disappointment and suffering and the pain that this world sometimes has on offer. What this book, what this letter, what Paul's letter to the Philippians shows us is that being a disciple doesn't happen for an hour a week. Being a disciple isn't something you do for 15 in the minutes in the morning before you go to work. Being a disciple isn't something that's simply about what you intellectually believe about the world or about heaven or about life or about death. Being a disciple is something that overcomes our entire life. Dallas Willard, author of a number of incredible books, puts it this way. Jesus does not call us to simply do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love then the doing of what Jesus did and what Jesus said becomes the natural expression of who we are in Christ. My friends, as you watch this today, you need to understand that is the goal of discipleship. That is a goal of what it means to follow Jesus, not simply to think the right things, but rather to walk towards what it means to become like Jesus. And what we have to remember as we hop into this passage today is the context from which Paul writes the words that we're about to read. Paul's been speaking about what it means to have joy in suffering and disappointment. 
Paul's in prison. He's awaiting trial that will have most likely one, uh, one outcome or the other. Either he will be released to go back and see the churches that he's planted in the Jesus communities that he was a part of launching, or he will be executed for his faith in Christ. He's awaiting trial. That's when he writes this letter. He doesn't know what's going to happen. We don't know exactly how long, but based on historical evidence, most commentators would say at least two years. Two years of Paul's life. He's been there. He's been waiting, thinking, wondering, how is this going to go? What is going to happen? Do I have a chance to get out or am I about to be killed for my faith? Is my life over? Will I see my friends again? What is going to happen? There's no clear picture of what's coming next. And that's a crazy spot to be in, right? When we don't know what the future holds. Maybe we can see some options. Maybe we can see some things, but it can create some scarcity, some anxiety in us when we don't know what's coming. I remember... uh, It was only two years ago, but in the spring of 2019, my wife Jalisa and I were just wrapping up a season of serving in a church in Salmon Arm where we lived, and she was wrapping up her time in a job that she had done and really, really loved, but it was time to finish there. And for me, we knew that I was going to be graduating out of seminary and stepping out of the role that I had served in in that church for the last three or four years. And and we had this time, this moment where we knew We weren't going to stay in Salmon Arm. That was what we did know. What we didn't know was basically anything else. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what we were doing. I didn't know if I'd get an opportunity to serve as a pastor somewhere or if I'd need to find work outside of the church. We didn't know what would come next. We thought Jaleesa might go to school, but we didn't know where we'd be living. We didn't know if we'd have money to get her in school. We, We didn't know anything. And I remember this anxiety and this fear and this terror about, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I believe God's good, but, but I just don't know. And that's stressful. And, and, and this interesting thing happened as we were at our community the other week. And, and we were sitting outside chatting with the people we do life with. And we were asking this question of, you know, when was a time you grew most in your faith? People talked about things like Bible camp or going to Bible college or spending time with someone else who loved Jesus or being mentored or whatever. And Julissa said this really interesting thing. She said that, that time when we had no idea what was coming, that, that's when we grew a ton in our faith. That's when we saw God move and work. But, but what's crazy is we didn't see it then. We could only see it in retrospect. We could only look back and go, oh my goodness. And, and as I started to think about that, I realized that's so true. You know, in that moment, in that time, I didn't know what was coming. But now as I look back, I believe that God did incredible things to help us trust in him through that season. But it doesn't change how painful or how scary it might be in the moment. And haven't we all, to some extent, especially in the last year, felt those things? We felt those questions weigh on us the heaviness of loss of whether it's grads or plans or vacation or whatever it may be, the heaviness and brokenness and disappointment that Jonathan spoke to last week, or maybe anxiety about the future. As you look at summer, or as you look at next fall, or as you look at even 2022 and you go, well, what is the world going to be like? Can I go see my family? Will I be able to travel? What's going to happen with the coronavirus? What's going to happen with all the things that are going on in the world? There's all this anxiety and it feels like there's just more questions than answers, right? 
Well, Paul's in a similar situation, but he does, he writes from this position where he's in a prison cell while facing that same kind of anxiety. And these are the words he writes. They come from Philippians 1, starting in verse 18, if you want to read along in your Bible. Here's what it says. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is rejoicing because he can see an outcome that he actually desires. He can see his deliverance. But the question we have to ask is deliverance from what? What, what does Paul mean when he says that word deliverance? Because it's big. It's, it's kind of like a meaty word. What, what is he saying when he's saying, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. It's going to be okay because it will turn out for my deliverance. Does he mean he's for sure getting set free from jail? He believes God's going to give him, you know, he's going to set him free and it's going to be okay and everyone's going to like him and all that kind of thing. Well, it doesn't seem so. In fact, he seems unconcerned with his own life. He says it right there. Whether by life or death, Christ is going to be magnified. He's not sure what's going to happen but he still believes deliverance is going to come. Well, well, maybe you say deliverance, he means salvation. Maybe through what he's going through right now, uh, God is going to love him and forgive him and bring him to heaven because of, look at all the sacrifices Paul has made for God. But we see all throughout the New Testament and Paul's writings, including in this letter, that salvation isn't found in how much you suffer for God. It's how much Jesus suffered on our behalf. Paul is clearly indicated elsewhere that we are saved and justified by grace and grace alone in Jesus. He doesn't need to be re-saved or re-delivered from his sin. Rather, he tells us that he expects to be delivered in the sense of his expectation. That he will not be ashamed, but with full courage now as always. Here's the deliverance he's speaking about. Christ will be magnified. Paul's goal is not purely physical in the sense of his own body. And it's not merely spiritual in the sense of saying that God will honor me because of how much I'm suffering. He believes that the most important thing about his suffering, his struggle, his moment in prison, and whatever comes, whatever is in the future, whatever is about to happen, is that Christ is magnified. And, and what does magnified mean? Well, it's a, it's a word we're familiar with. It's to make something clear, right? I think of binoculars or a telescope, something you look through to make something more evident or more clear. I think of the people I know who look at things really clearly or, or when someone puts on reading glasses or, or goes closer to something to kind of understand it. I, I watch Jaleesa all the time in her garden go and, and look at these like baby plants as they grow and she gets in at like what, what's going on in there? She wants to see, she wants it to be magnified. And Paul captures this concept. He captures this desire, this core desire of his, that through his life, through his death, Christ would be magnified with one of the more well-known statements or verses in the entire New Testament, but especially in the letter to the Philippians, when he writes that all of this boils down to one simple phrase for him. All of this, all the suffering, everything he's written about through the, the beginning of the first chapter, it all boils down to this statement. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the point Paul has been building to. That's what he wants the Philippians to see. 
all the talk about what is happening and why it's going on and and what's going to happen here and what's going to come and and who knows what's coming, but I believe that Jesus is going to use this for the gospel and I believe that God's going to bring courage to people to share the gospel and I believe that the message of the gospel is going to go forth and the kingdom of God will grow because of this. All the talk is pointing to this statement. Paul writes, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed, or in some versions, torn, torn between the two. My desire, Paul writes, is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. My desire, my desire, my Paul's desire is to depart and be with Christ. Now, now you might read that and go, wait a minute, is Paul like suicidal here? Is he hoping he gets killed by the Roman government? Some people might see it that way, but I I don't really read it that way. See, the word departed in the original languages, it it harkens more to something like pulling up tent pegs and moving on to the next encampment or or a ship about to set sail. It's it's loosening the ropes, loosening the anchor and, and setting sail towards wherever the journey is headed. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, which uh, many of us at this church are, and if you're not, that's okay. We still love you, whoever you might be. Um, you, You might think of Frodo at the end of Return of the King. He's been on this epic journey, and he saved the Shire. He even goes as far as to say, I've saved the Shire, but it wasn't for me. And he looks at Sam and Mary and Pippin and, and he says his goodbyes and then he sets sail. He's departing, but he's departing for something better. See, Paul's humanity is on display here. We get a peek into this apostle, this pastor, this church planner, this preacher, this tent maker, this writer, this political figure, this hero of the faith in the early church who sometimes can seem so upside our grasp, right? But in this moment, we see in Paul's life, he's tired, he's exhausted. The weight and the challenge of trying to follow Jesus and all the hard things that come with that, the the cost of that, the challenge of that, they're tiring. He's trying to lead people who aren't always the easiest to lead. If you read a lot of his letters, he's constantly facing jail and persecution and stoning and attacks, whether verbally or physically. He's got people arguing and debating him and talking about whether or not he has any right to lead or do do whatever. His his life is filled with stress and craziness and all these things. And, And we get this moment where we just see this like humanity of Paul. And he goes, oh man, it'd be better to depart To die is gain. I'd be with Christ. To die is gain because I'd be in the presence of Jesus. And that's why I love this passage. I don't always relate the most with Paul personally. I I relate more to guys like Peter who just feels like they keep messing up and they keep blowing. But, But Paul seems to like have it all together. But in this moment... We see, he goes, no, selfishly, I I would love to just go and be with Jesus. Because everything that's going on here, it's actually really hard. He's not denying that feeling. He's not denying that emotion. He's not denying the reality that the weight of following Jesus in this world can be heavy. Following Jesus is a struggle. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's not all easy. And while you and I in a country like Canada, where we experience immense freedom to follow Jesus, to worship him, to pray to God, 
that, that we may not face persecution in many different ways, but many Christians over the course of the last 2,000 years have. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you may recognize as the author of many books, but he chose to follow Jesus. And in his culture, it was Germany in the 1930s and 40s. So he chose to follow Jesus in the midst of the Third Reich and Hitler. And he understood what he himself calls in his book, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. He faced true persecution and ultimately he was executed for his loyalty to Christ and not Hitler. In his book, Cost of Discipleship, here's what he writes about the struggle of following Jesus. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. Here's what the first thing I want you to know today is to live as Christ means there's a price. There's a cost to our discipleship. There's a price to pay. It is not simple. Grace is free, but he calls us into a life of following him that is not simple. It's not always clear and and easy to do. It's not simply comfortable. And from this passage, we see that Paul understands this. He sees all that he's faced with through the lens of magnifying Jesus, of making Jesus more clear to the people around him. And he says those words, by my life or by my death, may Jesus be magnified. That's the point. To live is Christ. That has got to be our battle cry. In our world where the culture moves further and further away from following Jesus, from honoring God, to live as Christ must be our battle cry. We need to understand the cost of discipleship and what it means, not in some general sense, not in some sentimentalities, not in some pithy statements about to live as Christ, to die as gain. No, in real life, on the ground, spiritual warfare, do we understand the cost of following Jesus? Have we counted the cost? Are we willing to follow Jesus wherever he would call us? For Paul, it was a prison and potentially an execution. For you, it might be standing up for integrity in your workplace. For you, it might be loving your spouse really well. I don't know what it is, but have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Because we live in a culture with no lack of things that are telling you that they can provide life. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. But our culture says, to live is Christ. No, 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 no. You don't need Jesus. We've got advertisements and social media pages and political parties and conspiracy theories that will say, we've got life for you in all sorts of places. We've got life for you in this. If you buy this, you'll be happy. If you get this kind of a house, you'll be okay. If you have this kind of vacation, everything's good. You'll experience life. Find true love. Live your truth. You'll be joyful. Everything's okay. To live is Christ? No, 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 no. To live is to be happy. To live is to be safe. To live is to have a full bank account. To live is to be respected by the people who I work with. To live is to be powerful and wealthy and have control over my life. But here's the problem. A faith with me at the center will not survive. A faith where we slap a Christian coat of paint on top of a life that doesn't want anything to do with Christ will not survive. You cannot paint a house that is filled with mold and expect it to be okay. It will not sustain us in our culture to have vague sentimentality about Jesus and not a real relationship driven by the Holy Spirit. 
What you need to know, what I need to know, what I need to be convicted of today is that the call of Jesus is quite simple. It really is. It's not complicated. And we can complicate it and we can talk theology and we can use big words and we, we can use all these things to make following Jesus complicated so we don't really have to obey. But here's what it boils down to. Here's what Jesus says the call of discipleship is. Take up your cross, follow me. That's it. One sentence. Jesus isn't giving you a bait and switch. He, he's not kind of saying, oh, don't worry, it'll be fun. But it's actually not. No, no, no. He's saying, take up your cross and follow me. There's a cost to following Jesus. Following Jesus is one of the most beautifully simple things you can do, but that does not make it easy. To invite the Spirit to convict us through God's Word, through the Bible, for Jesus to shape us, for us to model our lives around who Jesus is, to seek to live out the way that Jesus would live. And, you know, the old sentimentality, oh, well, what would Jesus do? I think we need to go a step further because Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. We have to ask ourselves, not just what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were a 26-year-old youth pastor at Ridge Church living in Maple Ridge, British Columbia, who's married to Jalisa? What would Jesus do if he were me? Because Jesus was a single Jewish man in first century Israel. That's a different situation. But we got to ask, what will Jesus do? Were he in my shoes? Were he in my position? Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, it is simple, but it is not easy. There is a price. And Paul could only face what he was facing because for him, to live truly was Christ. Every action, every thought, every conversation, every relationship, every moment was sifted through the filter of his desire to see Christ magnified. See, the second thing I want you to know today, to live is Christ means there's power. Stick me in jail? Okay. I can't wait to tell my captors about Jesus, says Paul. Oh, let me go free? Amazing. I can't wait to go visit my friends and worship and pray with them. It's going to be so good to reconnect. Bring me before Caesar and threaten to kill me? Can't wait. I'll get a great big stage to talk about how amazing Jesus is and how he's changed my life. And if you kill me, so be it, because I'm going to go be with Christ and the gospel is going to move forward whether you like it or not. See, here's the deal for Paul. The gospel creates an abundant life that flows out of the Spirit's power that is not dependent on his circumstance. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. That does not mean you get everything you want. It does not take long following Jesus to realize that we do not get everything we want for us. Me-centered faith is not what Jesus invites us to. Look at how Paul concludes his reflection on his own discipleship. Here's what he says. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But, and that's a big, important but, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. But, Paul says, to, to die is gain. I'm good. I could go be with Jesus tomorrow. I'd be a happy man. That would be better for me than sitting in a prison cell. But Paul has an expectation. 
It's the third thing I want you to know today. To live is Christ gives us purpose, gives us a reason and a mission, and not only price and power, but a purpose to move forward. See, Paul saw his life not simply as something between him and God. He didn't just see it as, okay, Jesus loves me and it's a private thing, right? I've got my relationship with God. I've got my beliefs. I can't, you know, talk about them. It's, it's not my place to assert that what's true. Who am I to say what's really true? This is just what works for me. No, Paul's idea of faith went beyond just himself. Oftentimes in the church, we emphasize this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's very, very important. But though our faith might start with a personal relationship with Jesus, it was never meant to stay there. In Acts chapter 9, which we talked about at youth this week on Wednesday night, which I've just loved getting to kind of see Paul's story, Paul's conversion where he meets Jesus for the first time and then to study this passage years later. Paul's life is forever changed. Paul is this guy who is persecuting and tearing down Christians all over the place. And in a moment... Jesus breaks into his life. Jesus breaks into him, his life, in this incredible, powerful moment where he meets and experiences Jesus for the first time in his life. And it changes everything. It's not just a moment in Paul's story. It changes Paul's story. And Paul writes that for him, to die is gain. Years later, Paul will say, I know that my ultimate fate, my ultimate eternity, my ultimate place is with Jesus. So if they execute me, that's actually better for me. Selfishly, I'd kind of prefer that if I'm being totally honest. But the goal of the Christian life is not to receive Jesus and then wait around for heaven. It is not to receive Jesus, to pray a prayer, to say the right thing, to raise your hand, to believe the right theology, and then sit around and wait for heaven. Christian, your desire in life is not to be comfortable. It is to follow Jesus. We have a purpose. To live, Paul says, is Christ. And so Paul closes with a statement of purpose. Here's how he closes this thought. He says, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory. In what? In Paul, in the church, and how many people showed up on a Sunday, and how many numbers they're on a live stream, and how smart they are, and how, no, 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 in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Paul doesn't want them to glory in Paul. Paul doesn't want them to glory in how great they are. Paul doesn't want them to glory in anything other than Jesus. His call, his desire, his purpose is that he wants to remain and continue with them all for their progress and their joy in the faith. Every person I know whose relationship with Christ I admire and want to learn from is marked by joy. Progress and joy, Paul says, that's the goal. That's the desire. That's what he wants to see in them. I think most quickly when I think of joy of my grandma Marina, whenever I get a chance to talk with her on the phone or before COVID to sit with her over a cup of tea, would ask me about what God was doing in my life or, or what I was learning or what I was reading in scripture. Or she'd have a psalm for me or she'd have a prayer for me or she'd have a, a word of kindness or encouragement for me. What I think of when I think of joy is the way she laughs when you tell her what God's been up to. The, the way she smiles and rejoices. It's the most beautiful sound in the entire world, I think. 
because she is so filled after years and years and years of following Jesus. Not always easy, not always uh, comfortable, not always straightforward, but following Jesus that she is marked by joy. And that is what Paul wants for the Philippians. John Stott, famous theologian, says this in his commentary on the book of Romans, which was also written by Paul. The major mark of a justified believer is joy, especially joy in God himself. We should be the most positive people in the world. For the new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by self-centered triumphalism, otherwise not in me, not my good, my glory, my safety, whatever it may be, but rather in God-centered worship. So my question for you today, if you would say, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I've had a moment like Paul's where, where I've encountered Jesus for the first time, and if you haven't, I pray that that would be something that the Spirit would bring in your life, even today. But if you have, if you would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, here's my question for you. Is your life marked by joy? Is your faith marked by joy? It is joy the definer of what spiritual maturity looks like. Joy not in your bank account. Not in how perfect your family is. Not in how well your life's going right now. Not in the last time off you got. But in Jesus. That is the mark of Christian maturity. Not being smart not being powerful, not lording it over other people. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul writes about what it means if we've got all sorts of spiritual gifts and all sorts of these things, but we do not have love, which is intimately attached to joy. He says we're just a clanging symbol. We're a clanging symbol. See, there's a lot of things in my life that I have regrets about, if I'm honest. Lots of things in my past and lots of things in my present that I struggle with, that I'm frustrated by, decisions or statements I've made or, or actions that I wish I could take back. But never once have I regretted following Jesus. There is a price to following Jesus. To live as Christ means there is a price, but there is also power and there is also purpose. And never in my life have I regretted the choice to pursue Jesus above all else. That's why I've loved these videos that we've looked at in the pre-service. To imitate Jesus over the long haul, whether it's easy or whether it's hard, it might not be simple, but it's always worth it. Discipleship is costly. But as Dallas Willard explains, the cost of non-discipleship is even greater. Here's what he says. Non-discipleship will cost you abiding peace, it will cost you a life penetrated through by love. It will cost you faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. It will cost you hope that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. It will cost you power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly the abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring. The cost of discipleship is high, but the cost of non-discipleship is much higher. And today, as we close, we come to the communion table. We come to the table to remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood because we remember that this abundant life, the power and the purpose and the abundant life that Jesus offers us came at a price, the greatest price, the Son of God murdered on a cross for you and I.
See, because Jesus counted the cost. As we're going to see in Philippians 2 in a few weeks as we continue through this book, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but gave up his life for you and for me. That is what we celebrate, and that is what we remember as we come to the communion table today. Jesus viewed the cost of redemption. He looked at what it would cost to save you and save me, and he said, it's worth it. It's worth it. He would gladly pay for our hearts and our souls and our lives. Today, we don't just eat a cracker and take some juice as some form of symbolism, but we remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a free gift of grace, but that grace came at great cost. It came at great cost to Jesus. A broken body and a blood shed on our behalf for our progress and our joy. So as we take communion today, as we remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood, what I want to invite you to do is remember that Jesus did it, not because he had to, not because he was forced to, but because he loves you. Because he willingly laid down his life. He counted the cost and he counted you and I worth it to die for. That is what we remember today. And so we're going to take communion, but before, before we do, I just want to encourage you rush through this moment. If you need to take a minute, don't just like run through it because it's what we do every month. But remember who Jesus is. Remember the moment, maybe like you've had, like Paul, where Jesus broke into your life and changed your story. And then remember how excited you were to follow him. And maybe for you right now, after a year of COVID and a year of struggle and a year of disappointment and a year of suffering, it feels like to live would be nice, but to live isn't Christ. To live would be being able to see my friends again. To live would be being able to do what I want again or go to my favorite restaurant again or, or, or travel again or whatever it may be. But remember in this moment that Jesus has called us into abundant life that can only be found in him. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to remember together not only who Jesus is and not only what Jesus calls us to, but what he has done on our behalf. Here's what it says. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you're ready, take the bread and receive and remember Jesus' body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Or put another way, you proclaim that to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you're ready, let's take the cup together. Lord Jesus, we come before you 
We thank you that you are not simply Savior, but you are Lord. That you are King Jesus. When we say to live is Christ, we don't just mean to live is you, Jesus. We mean to live is for the King, for the Messiah, for the Lord. So today, Jesus, as we remember the price you paid to save us, would you help us count the cost of discipleship to you? Would we see, Lord, that it is so worth it? I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to know right now in this moment that you love us and that you have called us into life and life abundant. But that life is not for our comfort or our gain or our security or our success or our likability, but it's for you, Jesus. It's for you and it's for others' joy and others' progress and others' faith. God, would you humble us and draw us to what it means to follow you, to truly, like Paul, to take every thought captive and with the wholeness of who we are, say, Jesus, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It would be better to depart and be with you, Jesus. But there is a mission and a purpose right here and right now. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that you would give us the strength to follow you today. Not just in this moment, not just in this hour, not just as we watch this video online, but as we go in our weeks and in our days and in our moments, in our relationships, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we may go, Jesus, would we be able to say of our own lives, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We ask all these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.